Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcasts.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. My friend told me the other day he wouldn't eat beef tongue because it came from a cow's mouth. So I gave him an egg. Two Creepy Tales Tonight by N.M. Brown and Eli Pope, which I guarantee won't lay an egg. Let's get after it. Everyone's heard an urban legend about a strange town, but I think this one will be something new. Join us as we travel to a tiny town full of religion, superstition, and unfortunately, death. And now for your indulgence, Palms Up by N.M. Brown. The town my wife Violet was raised in is almost unremarkable. You won't find it on any best-of lists or see it signified on any map or atlas. 
She said she was happy as heaven to get out of there when we met. I saw little signs that things may have been different there than where I was raised. One of the most notable times was our first 4th of July together. We got invited to a co-worker of mine's house for food, fireworks, and the like. It was my first unofficial company function as a married man, and I was excited to show off my new bride. I imagined her eyes sparkling under the fireworks for most of the evening. It went well until the sunset. The children were all confined to a large screened-in porch while the adults lit a bonfire and began bringing out armfuls of fireworks. Violet and I were canoodling and drinking like usual, but the second she smelled smoke, her shoulders went rigid. The smile on her face melted away like a burning photograph as she rose from her chair. Once she turned and saw the fire, she screamed. The pupils of her eyes swam around frantically through blankets of tears as she surveyed the area. Jesus, honey, I exclaimed. Are you all right? Her tears were too much to contain, and it broke my heart to see them jump off of her lower eyelids, invading her beautiful cheeks. The look of fear from moments before was replaced with one of deep embarrassment. She stammered out an apology before excusing herself to the bathroom. My friend Daniel rushed over to me the moment she was inside of the house, his gaze full of question and concern. Yo, Derek, uh, he stammered. What the fuck was that? Like, is she okay? My neighbors could have called the cops, man. Honestly, I have no idea what that all meant. I'm just as surprised as you are, I replied. Oh, okay. Right on, he commented. Is it like a Tourette's thing? How much do you really know about this girl? I almost got angry. Almost. But if I were honest, if it were his girlfriend or wife, I'd have had questions too. So instead of getting an attitude, I just shook my head and grabbed a firework bundle. Violet joined me soon after. Relief flooded me as I wrapped my arm around her and felt her melt into the embrace. Are you okay, Letty? I asked genuinely concerned. Do you want to get out of here? She tilted her head up towards me and smiled. No, I'm so sorry. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. Let's stay, please. The party finished without incident, but I noticed my future wife stayed as far away from the fire as possible for the rest of the night. We didn't talk about it on the way home. I didn't press her for information on it that night or for many, many nights after. God, how I wanted to, though. Anyway, as I said, the tone. Suffice it to say, there were more reactions after that one. More puzzles I didn't have the pieces to. If you noticed, at the start of this thing, I made sure to say, almost unremarkable. There is one very distinct difference. However, nothing in heaven or hell could prepare me for what it was. Whatever mysteries my wife kept were on their way to being revealed after the phone call we received on that random Sunday night. My wife didn't recognize the number, so she handed it over for me to answer. It was a fun little game we played. Hello there, I yelled. Thank you for calling Lester's Morgue. You stab him, we slab him. How may I help you today? I waved my hand to hush my heartily giggling wife to hear what the caller had to say in response. This was usually the funniest part. Um, uh, the man at the other end of the line cleared his throat. <coughs> I'm 
Sorry, friend. I must have the wrong number. I was looking for a Violet Parth. The poor girl's father is dying, and I misdialed and got a morgue. What a tragic coincidence. He trailed off. Oh, fuck, I thought. I felt the wind spew out from under my sails like a hypodermic needle into a tit full of air. Violet rushed over and wrenched the phone out of my hand before running into our bedroom, shutting the door behind her. Now, I know I shouldn't have. When most of you hear this, you'll clutch your hands to your hearts and say, oh, you couldn't. But I did. I pressed my ear right up against the door and listened like an eight-year-old child listening for their punishment. You know how you used to get grounded as a kid, but they couldn't talk about it in what way in front of you in case they disagreed. So they'd deliberate in private before giving the verdict. You know what I mean. What I heard didn't make sense at the time, but it sure as hell does now. Caller. How are you, Violet? We've missed you since you left us. Violet. I'm okay, Father Madrigan. You said you were calling about my dad? Father Madrigan. That's right, dear. I'm afraid you have to come home. Violet. No, Father, I can't. Father Madrigan. I understand how you feel, but you have a duty. You missed your mother's funeral. Do you want to miss another? Violet, it has to be you. Violet, I understand. Father Madrigan, I have set the travel details. All you need to do is show your ID at the airport and get on the plane. Your father's car will be there to pick you up. Then the line disconnected. You don't have to come with me, she mumbled, pre-flinching from the reaction she knew she would receive. My loving wife took a trip in college with some girlfriends. They ended up being gone for way longer than they said they'd be. And what was worse was, half the girls I contacted that she said would be there claimed to know nothing about it. I will never know what happened during that week. Nevertheless, she knew I was uncomfortable with her traveling without me. Call it a type of PTSD, if you will. And no, I'm not entirely sure it was an affair. But something happened. Something bad. She saved me, and herself, from the argument and threw up both hands in concession. And before I knew it, we were packed up and on a plane. A black car was there to pick us up, just as promised. I couldn't help but feel out of my element riding to a place I didn't know. It would have made me feel much more comfortable to have my vehicle, but the suddenness of things left me without the necessary funds to rent a car. I selfishly hoped he had some sort of life insurance plan in place to help absorb the cost of the flight. We hardly had time to settle into her father's dusty spare bedroom when a nurse began yelling for my wife, saying the time was near. I'd never had the misfortune of seeing someone who was dying before. Walking into that bedroom, seeing his frail form hooked up to machines and gadgets, was the only time in my life that I wished to die young. He looked like he had been wrapped in a skin bag and then had all of the air sucked out of it. A sheath of white blanketed bright blue veins seemed to hug even the sinew of his flesh. His breathing grew hollow, and the length of time between drew much longer. His limbs twitched spasmodically as I prayed it was almost over. Help me, Violet ordered, rushing to his frail side. Hold his wrists. He needs to feel that he's not alone. Her words trembled with the threat of oncoming tears as I grasped his twitching, gnarled hand. No, she barked. He needs to have his palms up and unobstructed. 
hold his wrist. There was a venom of emphasis in her last word, one I had never had the displeasure of hearing before. Her threatened resolve finally crumbled as he passed from this world into the next. She collapsed into me with heartbroken sobs. The funeral wasn't anything out of the ordinary. I at least had that solace. There hadn't been a proper time to interrogate my wife on what exactly happened when we said our final goodbyes. It didn't seem pertinent to anyone else. I passed it off to a symbiotic rite of religion I was unaware of. People paid their respects, came back to Violet's father's house for food, and then went on their way. I held her as we attempted to sleep that night. There were so many tears, so many. He was the last living member of her bloodline, and even though we had forged our path for a family, I knew a part of her felt alone. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The silence of the atmosphere was almost palpable, like we had been enshrouded in a soundproof blanket, except the air had taken on a chill that hadn't been there before. An unspoken symptom of new grief, I gathered. My wife suddenly seemed so small, so defeated in the face of the tragedy. I wanted to reach out and hold her, but I thought better of it. As hard as it is to explain, I couldn't feel her. I couldn't tell you if it's telepathic or just mental muscle memory, but I could usually feel how my wife felt. If something was bothering her or she was angry or sad, I could feel it on my skin, like how sand clings to you after you've been to the beach. I looked over at her and nothing. Her spirit revealed neither light nor shadow. I know people become docile almost when they've been together for as long as we had, but this was wildly different. She darted out from behind me without a signal or warning, running past me without a glance. I took off after her, following as closely as possible without tripping myself up. My left knee throbbed from the exertion, and I could feel the arthritis that had begun to take hold in my ankles. Bursts of sound came from the direction we were running towards, like little horrified birds. The sounds had made their crescendo into fully formed words by the time I had caught up to my wife. At least a dozen or more of the townspeople gathered in the middle of a local playground. The back of our bodies were bathed in flashes of blue and red as police followed us on the scene. Voices of alarm climbed over each other as officers processed the situation at hand. A red-haired woman sobbed on her knees resting on the jagged cedar chips that lined the evening floor. A much more substantial crowd had gathered by then, and before long, everyone but the street residents was ushered away to cut down on the drama and chaos. From what we had gathered, an eight-year-old named Brandon Miller had gone missing while playing. The red-haired woman, the boy's mother, said she stepped away to help a little girl off the monkey bars, looked back, and her son was gone. The sun was swiftly setting, and by the time the moon had taken over, they still hadn't found the boy. The search disbanded, promising to be back to resume the process just before the first light, something that I think to this day was a fatal mistake. However, it wasn't my call. They did accomplish locking the town down, no one in or out, something that would be near impossible in a more industrial, booming, 
I dare say, normal tone. While that was good for Brandon's parents, it meant we were forced to reschedule our flight home. And with such little information to go on, we weren't even sure we would be able to make the next one. Not that Violet seemed to mind. As much as she denied being thankful to be stuck here, she still mumbled her half-hearted apologies for my inconvenience through smiling lips. Her eyes glistened with pleasure as she assured me we would be back home soon. Give it a chance, she said. This'll feel like home before you know it. So after spending our fourth unplanned night in her father's house, and with not much else to do, we joined the townsfolk at the first hints of dawn. The sun had just begun to stand above the trees when roars of barking rang out. The crowd rushed the area in waves, rendering any order previously held useless. This time, officers had the wherewithal to bring their dogs to help in the search. Faint screams resonated through the woods as one of the officers ran through the crowd. He was utterly breathless with an almost green complexion. He covered his mouth with a trembling hand as he sputtered information to the boy's parents about what they had found. Mr. Miller, the father, fell to his knees in anguish. Bastards, he wailed. They took my son's hands. They took my boy's hands before they slaughtered him. More mortified wails came from the depths beyond the trees. One thing I couldn't wrap my head around was why nothing was being done. I mean, sure, they had to examine him, but no one made any efforts to stay with the body after it was discovered. My worries were somewhat put at ease when I heard a deputy call for backup. However, when I asked about notifying the coroner, the officer deemed it unnecessary. Too late for that now, I heard him say solemnly. The crowd had fled to a nearby hill as if the higher ground would keep them safe. Or maybe it was to get a better vantage point. Hell, I don't know. What the hell is going on? I demanded to no one in particular. Letty, let's get out of here. There's nothing we can do about this now. The family needs privacy to grieve. My wife muttered the same words that the officer had mere moments before. It's too late for that now. Her eyes grew as large as pistols in the snow. The sounds of horror had died away, leaving the unsettling music of breaking branches and stomped grass in its wake. I dropped to my knees in shock when I saw the small boy stumble his way through the woods. It's culturally believed that the undead make grunt and groan noises, but that's not what happened here. See, Brandon's lungs contained no breath, so none escaped his battered lips. He stumbled wildly around the clearing. As horrific as it was to see, he reminded me of an infant Bambi on ice. Except, you know, dead. The boy's tongue writhed in and out of his mouth like a snake sniffing out food. His hands remained in rotting gnarled stumps between the twine bindings. His once lifelike tone is now replaced with shades of gray. By all accounts, this boy had been and still was dead. We'd all seen for ourselves moments before. His brain had ceased to function and he was driven only by the need for hunger. I looked back over to the Millers and my gut wrenched to notice that Mrs. Miller was no longer there. Damn it, I chastised myself. I only took my eyes off of her for one goddamn minute. A hunch began haunting my heart and bile rose in my throat as I recognized the flash of yellow racing across the nearly empty field. The woman flew through the grass, arms outstretched for her only child. In desperation, my eyes darted to her husband, who hadn't moved an inch. 
His face grew pale as his bleary eyes darted from his wife to their son. He knew something wasn't right here. His body turned away from the direction of his family as his eyes met my own. His shoulders shrugged helplessly in question of what to do. I shook my head forebodingly in warning, hoping to God it was enough. He held my stare for a brief moment, just long enough for us to hear his wife begin to scream. Arterial spray glossed his tiny teeth crimson like candy coating on an apple. He had buried his head in his mother's chest and ripped a chunk of flesh away upon departure. Blood spilled through her fingers as if flour through a sifter as she continued to scream, clutching her chest in an agonizing panic. Mrs. Miller had plenty of breath left and she was using every bit of it. The sound caused physical pain to my senses. Instead of joining his family, I found Mr. Miller running in the opposite direction. My mouth hung open incredulously at his cowardice. It was no surprise he picked up on it. Look at that kid, he breathed. He's got brown eyes. Ellie and my eyes are blue. I've sacrificed enough for a kid and wife that were never really mine. His words died out under the sound of gunfire, to no avail. Police officers and paramedics approached the field slowly, knowing in their hearts what the end result would be. I mean, sure, a few of them fled, but the good ones, the true heroes, honored their promise to serve and protect. Despite the heartbreak of the situation, I for one had seen enough. This wasn't my problem or my family's, and this wasn't my town. I grabbed my wife's hand firmly, only she didn't budge. Come hell or high water, lockdown or no lockdown, we were getting the fuck out of there. I'm sorry, she wailed. I can't. I can't abandon them, Derek. Her eyes were glazed over with a shimmer of thick resolve, and I knew I had lost her. Memories of the first time we met, kissed, made love, and married all flashed through my mind and heart at once. The pain was almost palpable, as if I could reach out and twist its inside like it was twisting mine. A better man would have turned tail and gone down with the ship next to his lady, but I wasn't ready to die yet, and that's precisely what was going to happen to the lobotomized citizens of this hellhole that stay. The selfishness in my heart allowed me to steal one last glance at my letty before coldly turning away. She certainly hadn't allowed me the same courtesy. In fact, all I saw was the tattered shirt on her back as she ran away. She seemed to be running so fast, running right to her gruesome death. The beauty of all the things I had come to admire about the town seemed to curl away as if burned and charred around the edges. My feet increased speed as I raced for my vehicle. The shining blue of the paint reinvigorated me, allowing me the last swift steps to my freedom. My hand paused upon reaching the door handle. My body became momentarily incapacitated as I struggled to accept exactly what that freedom meant. It meant forging onward with life without the girl that I've loved for so long. It meant looking into faces for the rest of my life and picturing the rotting animation of Brandon Miller's face. It meant always looking twice at souls laid to rest at open-casketed funerals. I let my mind free itself, throwing the car door open and plopping gratefully into the front seat. I hadn't realized I'd been crying until I felt the tears freeze in my cheeks. Flecks of snow fell from my boot like flour through a sieve, glazing the gas and brake pedals beneath me. That was another thing I hated about this literal godforsaken town, the damn snow. Southern traffic can be way more aggressive, but it's not much compared to the slipperiness of the roads up here. 
The war between my brain and feet began as I tried to fight the urge to speed out of there. My spine shuddered with unease as I came upon a surprising sight, even after all that I had seen. About a quarter mile up ahead, an old, abandoned wheelchair sat collecting snowflakes just on the edge of the highway. I had initially thought it was growing in size because I was on the approach. I didn't figure out it was moving until it was too late. It was rolling right into the highway. My brain lost the war and I found myself slamming on my brakes and swerving before my better judgment kicked in. The back of my SUV began to fishtail and before I knew it, the vehicle was airborne. I can't tell you how I came to a stop or how long I was out. I woke up just long enough to realize I'd been crushed between my steering column and passenger seat. A sizable shard of glass jutted out from the side of my neck and I could feel myself fading fast. It seemed cruel for the Lord to bring me to consciousness just for me to greet death with open eyes. I should have just hit the damn chair. One last thing flashed through my mind before a sense of peace took over. My hands were broken into fists, unable to free themselves from the wreckage around me. I couldn't help but notice that my hands were forced into a face-down position. The mile marker for the next town over was still miles away. I didn't wish to die young anymore. My eyelids fluttered as a rush robbed my breath of blood. Her words floated through my dying mind like an epitaph. This'll feel like home before you know it. I'll see you soon, Letty. Hope you enjoyed tonight's story, Palms Up by N.M. Brown. N.M. Brown is a Florida native, wife and mother of three, who reads about chasing away monsters to her kids before bed, then writing them down to get them out of her head. She is also the chief operations manager for our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Network. Her written work appears in over 50 horror anthologies, all of which are available on Amazon.com. If you'd like to hear more stories by N.M. Brown, you can search for her by name on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights archives. Imagine that voice that lives inside your head, usually quiet in the deepest and most shadowy nooks in your brain, quietly watching, anticipating your mistakes because it knows how weak you truly are. A pleaser, the person who refuses to stand up and be seen, be heard, feel the pain. At some point, that voice says, fuck this shit, and speaks volumes to us. Relentlessly loud, crude, and real. That's when you hopefully nut up and take that last train to Clarksville. That voice inside will meet you at the station. All aboard! And now, for your indulgence, Last Train to Clarksville by Eli Pope. suitcase in hands, you head to the station. There is no way in hell that you are going to forgive that lying, cheating bastard ever again. He can't be trusted anymore, and you know it. You know his lies about working late nights. The smell of that stinking fucking bourbon on his breath when he crawls into your bed at 3 a.m. 
his wanting even more sexual gratification even though you can smell the scent of his extracurricular whores he's been lying with. You ask the same questions over and over and his answers never make a grade of believability. You want real answers, not quick bullshit defenses. Is that her lipstick on your clothes? Do you ask whose blonde hair is that you just pulled from his collar? His answers are always lies and you know it. Why are you drunk and where is all this money from the overtime hours you're putting in? You ask him. <laughs> but you already know his expected lies. You're not stupid, are you? Are you going to be his fool again? Dig a fucking hole in the woods to stash his cheating carcass after you chop him into pieces. You know it doesn't need to be a big hole. He's such a little man with a shriveled scrubby worm. You know I'll help you. You know I'm tired of preaching this crap over and over when you refuse to follow through with anything but allowing the prick to continue his game. Why am I wasting my time inside your pathetic arduous mind? Are you willing to continue being his pawn? Why are you sitting there just looking at the situation blankly? Do you need him to give you physical scars to match the years of the mental ones he's given you? Grow some balls. You're nothing but his damn housekeeper. Do you love cooking and cleaning for a worthless piece of crap that does nothing but use you? while bedding down any other tramp he can fleece out of her panties? Are you waiting for him to give you a biological gift that keeps giving? Maybe herpes or the clap? You know me. You know you do. You've had me as your friend since the day you were born. My voice and instincts are the ones you've sought comfort in every time that hack fucks you over. You need to be watched and prodded, or you'll fall into every goddamn trap he has set for you. Don't you dare be weak or naive. Fucking kittens are weak. Hamsters are weak. Be a pit bull for God's sake. Use the balls you have that are bigger than the BBs he's sporting. You know, your pedantics are tiring, don't you? You don't need any more specifics. You know, my patience is near lost with you. You know who wants to be here to support you. But how long can you expect me to sit here and watch this predictable script you play? You're tiring. You are pushing my limits. Are you done listening to his fabrications about why he is going out of town? Why he isn't available for your calls when he's on those weekend trips? You know the type of woman who he's with when he isn't with you. You could pick her out of a lineup in a New York minute. Young, vivacious, and dumber than a bag of dog shit. All boobs and no brains. Wake the hell up while you still hold any value for someone else. Leave him. Who knows how you haven't stuck a knife in his chest or sweetened his drinks with antifreeze already? If it were up to me, he'd already be a burn spot on the river's edge. What are you waiting for? For him to bring some bitch home to live in the basement? 
so he only has to travel down a stairway instead of on a plane, train, or auto to dip his wick? All while you're upstairs reading a fucking romance novel. You're pathetic. Maybe you deserve each other. But you're on to his deceptions. You know what he is capable of by now. You know at the very least what you need to do. Conceive it, plan it, purchase what you require to get the job done, and fucking implement it already. You're at your last straw. Your wits end. Your cup is about to overflow. And it's not with your joy. You have your alibi. He needn't have that worry. Don't you lie to yourself. You've been thinking this for years. You've been planning how to make him pay. You feel the hate growing rampant inside your heart. You just need to cut the vine, damn it. You ache from the burn he's brought you with his sanctimonious line of shit. How it's always your fault for not being supportive like you promised on that wedding day. That was the day that brought this pile of excrement and carnage into your life. Drunk on promises to be broken just around the corner. Bullshit. You should make him pay. You should charge interest and you should demand repayment with his blood. You should make it excruciatingly painful. Make him suffer as you have suffered for all these years. But tenfold, you don't want to just leave him, do you? You need more than that. Why should you let him off the hook so easy? Are you going to just sneak out like a broken-spirited puppy and leave the perpetrator of all the crimes with the loot, the house, the car? Are you going to give him your last shred of pride? Why wouldn't you instead come up with a plan that leaves him suffering while you make your getaway? Or maybe you should watch his last gasp for air before you fill his mouth with more water so that you can watch his fat face turn beet red before turning a pale blue as he gasps and chokes, his eyes bulging out of their sockets in anguish. You can come up with a way. You're smart that way. You've done this before, haven't you? This surely isn't your first rodeo, is it? Do you need me to prod you on to defend your honor and kill the bastard that's ripping your heart out piece by piece? He holds it up for all of his drinking buddies to see and laughs at your expense while he guzzles another cheap glass of house whiskey. You need to be brave. You've been resilient to a fault. A ball can only bounce back so many times before it rolls out into the highway, horribly meeting its end, flattened and dumped by the curb, a forgotten clump of rotting trash. You don't want to be that ball. You don't deserve that. You're still young enough and attractive. Don't be his seconds and thirds. I'll be there inside your head. You won't be alone. I'll be your director and your alibi when you've finished your mission. Be strong. So it's poison you've decided? It's slow and sweet, but you won't get the satisfaction of that bastard twisting and gurgling. He won't know your reasons why, unless he feels your pain through his. I want you to take the ice pick with you, just for the final act. 
I want you to be able to enjoy the questioning of why he's hurt you. His fear will spill out of his eyes as he looks at you while you stab tiny round holes in his vacant heart. I want you to witness the fear fade into his slow death of forced, heaving, gasping, sucking sounds while he fights with everything he stole from you for his last breath. Praying it comes quick. I want you to smile at his pain and laugh as he begs you for help, just to kill him and give him that final relief from agonizing strain as his body slowly shuts down. Even if you get caught, you've won the race, but you won't be discovered. You've planned. You've mapped it out. You've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. You've cleaned your tracks and shown no one your inner disgust for him. You're the grieving widow, the victim, the crushed and lonely lady who doesn't know what to do without him. You're a fucking genius. Other than taking too long to realize it, all of those wasted conversations and attempts at repairing him, well, you can't fix being taken for granted and used like a throwaway call girl. Those times you let him enter inside you, even though you fought the urge to vomit while his sweat dripped and slid over your body. You can be an actress. You've done it for years. You can make anyone believe your performance. You can use the rage built up because you've flipped the release valve by letting off steam at the perfect time. Your pressure bled off, and now there is nothing left but tears of sorrow. Boo frickin' who. The cops will lick the grief from the palms of your hands like a puppy lapping up ice cream. What? Seriously? You finally did your job. And I congratulate you. Well goddamn done and bravo. Mission complete. All but for the bidding farewell as that worthless fuck's casket lowers into the ground for one last sweet-ass goodbye. I'm proud of you, girl. You got off your lazy bum and staked your claim. The poison was a choice for the meek, but at least you followed through. It did look like shit there at the last, all shriveled and sunken in. I hope you took a snapshot for memory's sake. Something to hang over the fireplace mantle. I myself would have chosen the ice pick or... Maybe a hammer, something with gusto that would color the room red. But I seem to have a little more rage inside. You've always been the humane one. The pleaser. Take your last look at the pews. Count the whores that sit in the back rows in the shadows, barely old enough to drive here on their own without their mommies, each wondering who the other was to him. Which slut was the first to be his second to you, and so on. You had his best before he was another's sloppy seconds. You win. You get the house, the car, the insurance money. You get it all. But most of all, you get the satisfaction of knowing it was all by your wit and tenacity. You get back your dignity, and that's golden. 
And now, my lovely, with suitcase in one hand, I want you to head to that station with a one-way ticket in your other hand, mentally say good fucking riddance to him as you board that train to a new life. You can ride off into the sunset knowing you've done an A-plus fine fucking job. You've succeeded the valedictorian of the perfect homicide. But best of all, now you can call him. Let him know you finally did it. No more sneaking him out the back door when the piece of shit husband crawls in drunk again. You've checked him out, right? He's got money. He's not bad looking and you know he's a porn star in bed. I think he may even have a weak heart. But I guess you knew that all along. I sure hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Last Train to Clarksville, written by Eli Pope. Eli Pope is a major writing contributor for Fear from the Heartland. Eli began his love of creating stories back in high school creative writing classes. The passion laid dormant for decades while life took him different directions. The stories never left, and he finally succumbed to the voices in his head telling him to put them on paper and put them on paper he did, earning the Literary Titan Award for all four books of the Mason Jar series, The Judgment Game, The Spark of Wrath, The Glass House, and The Reclamation, which you, dear listener, can hear on audible.com, performed by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley. The only thing I will tell you, Billy J. Cater is a bad dude. You can hook up with Eli Pope at his website, elipope.com that's eli e-l-i pope p-o-p-e dot com he can also be located on facebook at author eli pope or search groups on facebook the mason jar room If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, 
for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.